Well, beloved, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, last weekend, I had the opportunity to travel to Bangkok with some other brothers uh, from the church. Uh, it was good to see a work that we are supporting there called Bangkok City Baptist Church. They were planted last year with 18 members. And this weekend, when we visited them, uh, we've seen that they've grown to about 33 members. And we had the joy of joining in their baptism as well. We saw two uh, ladies from uh, a Buddhist background being baptized into the faith. So we, we give thanks to God for the fruit that He's bearing through that church, Bangkok City Baptist. So if you're in Bangkok, do stop by to visit that church. Uh, we, uh, we, we know the brothers there, they're dear brothers and sisters to us. So do stop by and encourage them if you happen to visit Bangkok. Well, friends, we are in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, that's found on page 946 of the Pew Bibles. Have we ever felt guilty? And maybe we look back with regret over what we've said and done or what we've left unsaid or undone. You know, maybe we are ashamed of ourselves for falling short, for hurting someone. Perhaps we look back on a broken relationship and wish we had done differently. Maybe things wouldn't be so broken. You know, maybe we're sorry for the trouble and pain we've caused to ourselves and others. And I believe all of us, every single one of us here in this room, I think all of us have experienced guilt. Maybe if you haven't, maybe you just need to think a bit deeper. All of us have experienced guilt because every single one of us has done wrong things or we've failed to do right things. So how do we deal with our guilt? What do we do with it? I, I trust that not, no one likes to feel guilty. So we often look for ways to cope with guilt, don't we? You know, some try denial. You know, if, if I can just convince myself that I've not done anything wrong, then maybe my guilty feelings will go away. You know, but, but what if my guilt is more than merely a feeling? What if I'm objectively guilty, regardless of what I feel or think? For example, uh, we, we know that a hardened criminal is still guilty even if he doesn't think that he's done anything wrong. That there is some objective measure of guilt, isn't there? You know, some try to deal with guilt through escapism. You know, we occupy ourselves with the pressures of life or the pleasures of life, whether it's work, entertainment, sex, food. You know, perhaps if we can distract ourselves enough, then we don't have to deal with our guilt. You know, but not thinking about it will not make it go away. Now, what if we work harder to try and do better next time? You know, maybe try to be nicer to others, resolve to be more disciplined, moral, or religious, now, perhaps if we do enough good, then that can outweigh the wrong that we've done and, and somehow we can feel better about ourselves. But how much good is enough? Or some of us compare ourselves with others. You know, I'm okay as long as I'm not as bad as those people. Now, yes, I lose my temper and yell at my kids, but hey, I, I don't abuse them. You know, yes, I, I cut corners at work, but at least I'm not laundering billions of dollars. 
But are we less guilty just because someone else is more guilty of more serious wrong? Or, or maybe some of us would just think about forgiving ourselves, right? That, that's quite a popular notion nowadays, you know, forgive yourselves and move on. But, but again, that, that's not really satisfying, is it? Because if, if I've wronged you, I don't think you'd be satisfied that the matter is resolved if I told you that I've forgiven myself. There's still, there's still wrongdoing that's outstanding between us. I don't think we can just forgive ourselves and move on. The truth is that we feel guilty because we actually are guilty. And I put it to us that guilt is not merely psychological. Guilt is not merely emotional. Uh, guilt is certainly not simply caused by low self-esteem. You know, in his book, Life Together, uh, German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this insightful observation. And, and this was striking coming from Bonhoeffer because Bonhoeffer's father was a psychiatrist. So Bonhoeffer knew what psychiatry would talk about in, in terms of how it dealt with guilt. But this is what Bonhoeffer observed. He said, worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. The guilt we feel is real because we have, in fact, turned away from the God who made us. He made us to live according to His ways. But we have rebelled against God. We've sinned against the Holy God. So what we need is not to feel better about ourselves, not to somehow feel less guilty. What we need is not self-forgiveness. What we need is God's forgiveness. But how can a righteous God forgive guilty sinners? Well, we come to a passage in Hebrews that really wraps up the main theological argument of the letter that began in chapter 5 and has come to culmination here in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. So far, we've seen how Jesus is the better high priest. He establishes a better covenant through his better sacrifice. You know, why, why does Hebrews labor this point again and again that Jesus is better? He's the better high priest. It's a better sacrifice. He establishes a better covenant. Well, Hebrews wants us to trust in Jesus, the only one who can fully and finally remedy our fundamental problem of guilt. Without Him, we are still guilty. Without Him, we cannot draw near to the Holy God. So the big idea of this passage is really good news for us. Uh, the big idea is this, we are fully forgiven through Jesus' obedient, single sacrifice of Himself. We are fully forgiven through Jesus' obedient, single sacrifice of Himself. And we'll unpack this in three points. So let me read for us first from verses 1 to 4. And again, we are on page 946 of our Pew Bibles. Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. As we heard from Hebrews 9 last week, uh, as Yanadi preached for us, uh, the Old Covenant law set forth uh, an elaborate sacrificial system that culminated in one day in a year. It's called the Day of Atonement. And, and once a year, on that day, the high priest would enter the tabernacle's most holy place. But he didn't just come in and go as he pleased. He had to come in with the blood of bulls and goats. And his purpose in going into the most holy place was to atone for the sins of the people. Then the high priest, after he came out of the most holy place, assuming he survived, he would come out and confess the people's sins over a live goat, another goat, and send it away into the wilderness. So every year they do this again and again and again. You know, I think that showed us that these sacrifices offered under the law were not final. You know, the law itself isn't bad. The, the sacrifices themselves in the Old Testament aren't bad, just that they were not meant to be ultimate. They were not meant to be the final remedy for sin and guilt. You know, verse 1 tells us that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow, not the substance, but the shadow. Shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now, I used to be in a long-distance relationship with my wife before we got married. So for six months before we got married, she lived in the US, I was in Singapore, we were planning a wedding long distance. Uh, so we, we, we called each other regularly. You know, we didn't have WhatsApp or Zoom at that time. Uh, we, we didn't write letters, but we called each other regularly. You know, those, those phone calls were meaningful. They were a way of keeping touch with, one, with each other. But we knew that you know, we couldn't build a marriage just on phone calls. Right? There, there, would come a, there, there would have to come a time when we would have to be together in person. That's the substance of the relationship. The phone calls were like the shadows. Right? They were kind of pointing forward to that reunion that we were looking forward to when we get married and finally move together uh, to a different country. Well, the, the law was like that as well. Right? They like those phone calls that we, we have. Uh, we know that they, they tell us about the person, but they're not the final substance. They, they kind of make us want more. Right? And, and that's exactly what the sacrifices were meant to do. They, they were urging us to look forward beyond the animal sacrifices to the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But that's what Hebrews says. They are a shadow of the, tr of the good things to come. Therefore, these animal sacrifices cannot finally remove our guilt. As he says very explicitly in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Because if these sacrifices were actually effective, then why would they have to be offered again and again every year? If they were really effective, then once would do. One sacrifice would do it. But instead, the repetition of the animal sacrifices year after year under the Old Covenant law was meant to be a constant reminder of sins every year. These sacrifices highlighted the people's need 
for full and final forgiveness because the animal sacrifices were unable to cleanse anyone from sin and make them holy. So Old Testament Israel lived under the, the consciousness of sins. Verse 2, the, the people labored under this consciousness of sins. They had no assurance to boldly approach God as fully and finally forgiven people. And in fact, the, the layout of their camp was a reminder to them that they couldn't just come to God anytime they pleased. Right? Uh, the, the, the priests surrounded the tabernacle to really protect the people from coming into God's holy place and, and thereby perishing in the presence of a holy God. Holy man, holy God and sinful man remain separated under the old covenant. And Israel was meant to look forward to a saviour, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. You know, if, if the rituals of the old covenant law had no power to save, then even much more useless are our man-made efforts or attempts to be right with God. No amount of good conduct or good works that we do can earn us God's forgiveness. You know, we cannot draw near to God on our own. You know, I, I, I like that old hymn that says these words, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God, not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. We cannot be forgiven through mere religion. Let me read for us from verses 5 to 10 as we think about our next point. Hebrews 10 verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So number two, we are forgiven through Jesus' obedient sacrifice. You know, therefore, when Jesus came, you know, Jesus didn't perpetuate the system of animal sacrifices, did he? I think there's no record of Jesus offering a sacrifice for sin at the temple. He didn't offer animal sacrifices. Instead, his mission in coming was to do the will of God the Father. As it says in Psalm 40, he did the will of God the Father by laying down his life to save sinners. Now, Hebrews quotes the words of David in Psalm 40 that was read for us earlier in the service. And the author of Hebrews says that what God truly desires, what God truly requires is not animal sacrifices, it's not religious observance, but what God truly requires is genuine obedience. Perfect blameless, genuine obedience. 
You know, King David, unlike his predecessor Saul, was a man after God's own heart. You know, if you read back in the book of 1 Samuel, you read about how Saul disobeyed God, and then God rejected him from being king. Uh, the, the prophet Samuel confronts Saul in 1 Samuel 15, and, and the prophet Samuel says these words to Saul. He said, "'Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices?' as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So this idea of obedience being better than sacrifice isn't a New Testament concept. It's there right in the Old Testament itself. Idea of how God requires of us not religious rituals, but our wholehearted devotion and obedience to Him. Why? Simply because God alone is worthy of all our worship. Therefore, He calls us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with our, the very fibre of our beings, but to give ourselves unreservedly to God. That's what God requires of us, not religious ritual. The animal sacrifices were not supposed to be ultimate. Without true obedience from the heart, religious rituals and practices are empty. Uh, they're useless. You know, I, I think this is a good time to pause and reflect on our own lives, on the state of our own hearts. You know, do we love and obey God from the heart? Or are we simply going through the motions? Are we proud and self-righteous? Do we think better, more highly of ourselves because we know our Bibles well? Do we think highly of ourselves because we are good church-going folk? You remember what Paul says in Romans 2, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You know, God requires of us Perfect obedience. It doesn't grade on a curve, right? You know, it, well, we, you know, we struggle with gray areas, but imagine from, from God's perspective, it's black and white. He sees whether or not we've perfectly obeyed because He requires of us perfect, unblemished, full obedience. And as it says in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in God's holy place, who shall stand in God's presence, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Pure heart. The truth is that none of us, none of us has perfectly obeyed God. And we have all fallen short of His glorious holiness and righteousness. If God demands of us perfect obedience, we are all doomed. We are all guilty. Even David, a man purportedly after God's own heart, even David sinned against God. What hope do we have of being forgiven and accepted by God? Well, our only hope is a Savior who makes us right with God by obeying for us. 
by obeying God on our behalf. The good news is that God has spoken fully and finally by His Son, Jesus. And unlike David who failed, Jesus succeeded. He is the promised King who perfectly obeyed God, who did what David failed to do. Jesus came to do God's will. Right? And He says in verse 10, by that will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, th this is God's will. This is, uh, Hebrews 10 tells us what the will of God is. Verse 10, this is God's will, to, to save sinners like us through the sacrificial death of His Son and to make us His holy people. This is the will of God that Jesus has come to accomplish. This, the cross is a part of God's plan. So if we are in Christ, if we have trusted in the one who obeys for us, then we have been made holy. You notice how in, our ver in, in verse 10, the word sanctified is past tense. You know, I think we're often accustomed to thinking about sanctification as a process. Well, indeed, it is, it is a process. The Bible does speak of sanctification as a process. But the Bible also speaks of sanctification as instant. When we believe in Christ, we are made holy. That there's a positional change in us. We, we go from darkness to light. It's a, it's a positional change. That, that's, that's being sanctified, past tense. We go from being unholy to holy. We go from being sinners to saints. I think it's very striking if you read the, Old, if you read the New Testament. Nowhere does the New Testament speak of Christians as sinners. We struggle with sin, yes, but our identity is not sinner. Our identity has become saint. That, that's that positional change that has happened when we trust in Jesus. And that's the positional change that our, the author of Hebrews is highlighting here in verse 10. He's not talking about progressive sanctification. He's talking about positional sanctification from unholy to holy, not because of anything we've done, but simply because of what Christ has done for us, because He's obeyed for us. Jesus has cleansed us from the guilt of sin. He set us apart for God. We have a new identity as God's holy people. Do we realize that that's who we are? If we are in Christ, we are God's holy people. Therefore, we're supposed to be who we are, to live as people who are, have truly been made holy by Jesus and then we are to do God's will. How? By sharing the gospel with others so that they too can come to be saved through Jesus. So that they too can be made holy through the blood of Christ. That's God's will. You know, if you're, if you're wondering about God's will for your life, that, there it is. To make Jesus known so that others may come to know Him and know the Father. You know, indeed, as we've sung, how deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son, that's His will, to make a wretch His treasure. You know, by this we know, love, that God sent His Son to the cross to save the guilty and the godless. God did not spare His beloved Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Praise God. Praise God, for He is the ultimate source of our salvation. Jesus died for us because that was the Father's will. 
Jesus died for us because the Father loves us. Jesus obeyed His Father through pain and sorrow. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, you, you know, picture yourself in Old Testament times as, as you witness the animal sacrifices. Imagine the blood and the noise. Imagine the noise of poor, unwilling creatures being killed, slaughtered. You imagine the, the, the sound of animals crying out in pain and anguish. You know, it's, 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 quite, a, it's, it's quite something if you think about it. None of the animal sacrifices gave themselves willingly. Their lives were taken from them by force against their will. But what, what does the scripture say about Jesus? He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, like a sheep before the shearers is silent. Jesus offered himself freely for the ungodly and the ungrateful, not a complaint. He simply said, not my will, but yours be done. He died for sinners who hated him, who despised him. Through his obedient sacrifice, Jesus does away with the first, verse 9, meaning he has fulfilled the law and done away with all the sacrifices under the old covenant. This was in order to establish the second, which means Jesus has brought us into a new covenant relationship with God. If we believe in Jesus, then we now belong to God because of what Christ has done. So friends, why trust in anything or anyone else? If we repent and believe in Jesus, He credits His righteousness to us. Jesus has obeyed for us. He's done for us what we could never do for ourselves, that we might be right with God. As it says in Romans 5, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So friends, are we filled with feelings of guilt? Are we filled with regret and shame over sins, past and present? Or do we even fear the future, whether we'd be able to cling on to Christ? Maybe we've cherished secret sins that we're ashamed of. Maybe even in this past week, we've indulged secret sins in our lives or in our hearts. Maybe we've hurt our loved ones with our impatience and frustration. Maybe we've cut them with harsh, unloving words. Maybe this past week, we've struggled with anger, bitterness, with resentment. Maybe we're holding on to some kind of unforgiveness in our hearts. Maybe we've been unfaithful, unkind, unloving, unmerciful. Or perhaps we've lusted after fleshly desires, coveted worldly things. Are we disappointed and ashamed of how often We've fallen and stumbled. But this 
These verses are for us. These verses invite us to lay the burden of our guilt at the foot of the cross. As it says in another hymn, Come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't wait until you're better. You'll never be, not on your own. Trust that God will forgive us because of Jesus' obedience, not ours. You know, come to Jesus now, right now, in this moment, as, as you hear this gospel, come to Him now. Don't delay. Now, that's what Hebrews wants us to do, to, to draw near to God with the full assurance that Jesus has obeyed for us and He has opened the way for us to boldly approach God with all of our sin and guilt and to receive grace and mercy. Then, having been forgiven by God, let us follow our obedient Saviour by also offering ourselves in obedience to God to do His will. Finally, number three, we are forgiven through Jesus' single sacrifice. Let me read for us from verses 11 to 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we have been cleansed and made holy through Jesus' sacrifice once for all. It's the end of verse 10. So we are forgiven through Jesus' single sacrifice. His one sacrifice is sufficient to save. It does not need to be repeated, does not need to be added to or supplemented in any way. No, Jesus is enough. He's really enough, fully sufficient for sinners like us. And having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, verse 12, Jesus' work is done. It's finished. You know, beloved, do you, do you realize this amazing truth that if you are in Christ, you cannot be more forgiven than you are now? We cannot be more forgiven because Jesus has truly paid it all by one single sacrifice. So take comfort, friends. Take comfort from the cross. The guilt of all our sins past, present, and the sins that we will commit in the future, all laid on Christ, all borne by Him, all paid for by His blood. It is truly finished at the cross. Now, why do we think that we can somehow supplement the finished work of Christ with our own pathetic attempts at self-righteousness. It is finished. Single sacrifice. 
therefore Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. You know, this, in, in verse 12, it refers to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Not stand and keep working, but sit. Sit because Jesus obeyed all the way to the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted His Son. Jesus is risen, ascended in glory, worthy of all worship. And now He prays and He advocates for us on the basis of His finished work. He appears before God on our behalf and He pleads His blood, His finished work on the cross. Let's arise and, and go to Christ, our great high priest. He ever lives to intercede. His all-redeeming love never fails. He pleads His precious blood for our good. You know, how different from the Old Testament priests who had to stand daily at service because their work was never done. Day after day, month after month, year after year, the Old Testament priests had to offer repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's, it's really like us and our futile attempts to deal with our guilt. We try to do them again and again, but we always live with the consciousness of sins. Why not trust in the single sacrifice of Christ? If we are in Christ, there's no longer any consciousness of sins. You know, this does not mean that we are no longer aware of our sinfulness. You know, not being conscious of sins does not mean that there is no need for us to repent anymore. You know, the Holy Spirit still convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit still leads us to confess and repent. But when the Spirit convicts God's people, it is a conviction and not condemnation. For in Christ, we are no longer guilty. Through the cross, our consciences are truly cleansed. We are assured of God's forgiveness. Therefore, we have the confidence to run to God when we, have, when we come under conviction. We don't run away from Him when we fall. Now, I, I think a good illustration for that is, is, is a parenting relationship that is loving. You know, oftentimes, if the parents are loving, you know, they, they invite the children to, to, you know, the children feel comfortable sharing their failures and their weaknesses with their parents. You know, when, when, when there's a loving relationship between the parents and the children, the children feel at liberty not to run away from their parents when things go wrong, but to run to their parents when things are not working out. And the children feel at liberty to bring their struggles to their parents and to ask for help. That's exactly what it means to live without the consciousness of sins we have the liberty to run to God when we sin and to seek His help because we know that Christ has truly paid it all. And that's why we confess our sins regularly in the service. You know, our, the confession of our sins is uttered by believers running to God, recognizing our constant need for Jesus. That's why we confess our sins in the service. It's a reminder to us of how we need a Saviour and how a saviour has been provided through Jesus. Biblical confession is a gracious reminder of the goodness of Christ and of the love of God.
through His Son. You know, some of us use this Bible reading plan. You know, I, I use that myself. It's called the machine reading plan. Takes you through the Bible. Uh, takes you through the New Testament twice in a year, Old Testament once, and the Psalms twice. I think so. So that's a reading plan that I follow. Uh, the, the, the the McShane reading plan was, uh, was kind of put together by this 19th century Scottish pastor called Robert Murray McShane. He 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 passed away at quite a young age, but he was a very faithful minister, laboured faithfully, and he, he he said these wonderful words. They're so encouraging, and I pray that we would take them to heart. He says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For, for, every, for every one look that you see your sin, don't stop there, but, but look to Jesus. Take 10 looks at Christ. That, that's biblical confession. We see our sin, we run to the cross. That's what we're doing week in and week out. And we confess our sins. We look to Jesus because of His single, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We look to Jesus because He's coming back. Verse 13, Jesus is waiting until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. We look to Jesus because we have the hope that one day Jesus will make all things new. He will right all the wrongs. He will finally defeat sin and Satan, he will return to complete his victory by judging his enemies and conquering the final enemy, death. Oh, friends, are, are you Jesus' friend or are you his enemy? Repent and believe in him. Don't persist in your rejection of him, otherwise you will face his judgment when he returns. But if we belong to Jesus, we look forward with eager longing for His return. We have a sure hope because Jesus has, by a single offering, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, we ought to be holy because we have been made holy. Our resurrection and glory are guaranteed because we are fully forgiven in Christ and we shall be raised with Him perfectly pure and blameless. Oh yes, we are still being sanctified now. We are still very much a work in progress and therefore we should be patient with one another because we all still struggle with sin. But, but these verses assure us that the victory is certain because it doesn't ultimately depend on us. So we can press on and not give up. We can hold fast to our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And the Holy Spirit assures us. He bears witness to us. Verse 15, the Spirit Himself assures us that we have been forgiven in Christ. How the Spirit speaks to us through the Scripture. And what the Bible says, the Spirit says. To be Spirit-filled is to have God's Word dwell in us richly. And, and here in Hebrews 10, the Spirit assures us through what God says in Jeremiah 31, in speaking of the new covenant. The Spirit tells us, using Jeremiah 31, that our assurance is founded on God's faithfulness to His Word. And this doesn't change, regardless of our feelings or circumstances, regardless of whether we feel very assured or not. Assurance means being assured 
of what God has done through His Son. If we have trusted in Christ alone, then God reassures us with these wonderful words. Verse 17, I will remember your sins no more. Isn't that wonderful? God says to us, if you are in Christ, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. You know, this doesn't mean that God is forgetful. You know, certainly God doesn't forget. But when it says He doesn't remember, He means that He no longer holds it against us. He no longer calls it to our account. Why? Because Christ has truly paid it all. There's no condemnation if you are in Christ. So certainly don't condemn one another because there's no condemnation in Christ. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Verse 18. Beloved, we are finally and fully forgiven in Christ. There is nothing, nothing else we can or need to do to be accepted by God. Are we still trying to make ourselves acceptable to God through our own efforts? Are we holding others to that standard that you need to make yourself right with God by doing certain things, by looking a certain way, by saying certain things? Do we hold one another to those standards? Why? There's no condemnation in Christ. Why do we condemn one another? Why not forgive as we have been forgiven? Rest and rejoice in Jesus' finished work. You know, happy is the one whose sin is covered. You know, speak this good news to ourselves again and again, especially when we're tempted by self-righteous pride to rely on our works to gain God's favour. You know, speak this good news to ourselves again and again, especially when we're discouraged by our sins. When we feel distant from God, when we think that our sins have somehow disqualified us from the kingdom. Speak this good news to ourselves that Jesus has paid it all and we can draw near. We can draw near to God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You know, but full and free forgiveness in Christ does not give us a blank check to do whatever we want. You know, far from it. Because the blessing of the new covenant is that it changes us from the inside out. God has written His laws on our hearts and minds, verse 16, that we might genuinely obey Him from the heart. In Christ, we are a new creation. As our statement of faith says that we read earlier in the service, regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ. Our old sinful self has truly been nailed to the cross together with Jesus. We have been raised with Him to new life. Jesus makes us holy. So be holy as you are holy. Therefore, beloved, live as God's holy people. Since Christ has made an end to sin, no longer live as though sin still controls us, rules us, doesn't. 
Forgiven people are obedient people. Because Jesus has removed our burden of guilt, we have true joy, we have hope, we can forgive others because God has forgiven us so lavishly in Christ. We can meet together, gather regularly to praise God and to encourage one another to cling to the hope that we have in Christ, to keep trusting in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. So when we meet, spur one another on to love and good works. More on this next week. Help one another to persevere in Christ until the end and not drift away. Oh, beloved, let us draw near to God together. Let's pray.